Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. On this week, we are on verse 43. Now, after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had also gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. There was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Father, I pray that you would uh, anoint these lips of clay this morning. We know, Lord, that your word will not return to you void. It will accomplish that which you have set it out to purpose to do that. Whatever that is in every individual life here, I pray that would happen, Father. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I've sometimes been asked, excuse me, why do bad things happen to good people? I understand the sentiment, but I think the greater question is, why do good things happen to bad people? But that's a different sermon. But make no mistake about it. Life does often seem very unfair, and the world can be a cruel and malevolent place for saint and sinner alike. It reminds me of a story of a traveling salesman who drove past a farm one day, and he noticed a pig with one wooden leg. He didn't think much of it until a week later, driving by the same farm, he noticed the pig now had two wooden legs. The third week, to his astonishment, The pig had three wooden legs. And finally, after seeing the pig the fourth week with four wooden legs, he had to stop to inquire about it. He tracked down the farmer and asked him about this strange sight. The farmer told him, well, let me tell you, mister, that is the greatest pig who has ever lived. About a month ago, he saved my wife and kids and me from our burning house by waking us up in the middle of the night so he suffered no harm. The salesman continued to prod the farmer about the pig's wooden legs. Well, the farmer replied, this pig is just like one of the family. He really is a great pig. A couple of weeks ago, our youngest boy fell into the creek, and this truly wonderful pig fished him out just in time to save him from drowning. He's a fabulous pig. And then last week, I fell off my horse, and my foot got caught up in the stirrup. 
This great pig ran alongside the horse and me and untangled me and truly saved my life. He is the greatest pig in the world. Losing his patience, the salesman finally shouted, All right, enough already. He's a great pig. But what about his wooden legs? To which the farmer replied, Well, with a great pig like that, we just didn't have the heart to eat him all at once. They're getting it. They're getting it. Okay. As I said earlier, sometimes like that pig, we can try to do all the right things, but life can still seem hard and what seems to us colossally unfair. Sometimes because we live in a fallen world, even the innocent suffer the consequences. As in sometimes children get deathly ill, and that's what we'll be looking at this morning. Look at verse 43 with me. Now after the two days he departed from there and went to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had also gone to the feast. The first miracle performed in Cana was when Jesus turned water into a wine. That was a time of family celebration. Here the second miracle was performed at a time of family devastation. That teaches us that whether we are experiencing times of gladness or times of sadness, Jesus is the man for the moment. Whether celebration or devastation, a wedding party or a funeral gathering, Jesus is the one you can look to, count on, and receive from. The fact that Jesus encountered a royal official in Cana of Galilee where he had made the water into wine only added to the irony of the situation. This was the very place where Jesus performed his first miracle. Yet instead of exhibiting true belief in him because of his undeniable supernatural power, the people simply will display a desire to see even more miracles. John MacArthur gives us this commentary. The Galileans did not honor him for who he really was. On the contrary, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem, they welcomed him merely as a miracle worker. They were curiosity seekers, eagerly hoping to see Jesus perform some more sensational feats. Thus the Apostle John writes with a sense of irony, the Galileans' reception of Jesus was not genuine, but superficial and shallow. Look at verse 46 with me. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judah into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. Put yourself in this father's sandals. He's an important government man working for King Herod Antipas. But being important doesn't keep your kids from being sick. We know by the Greek word used that his son was a very young boy, and he had a fever. And it's not just a take two children's Tylenol and call me in the morning fever, but a fever that was so vicious that the hour the boy is healed, it's obvious to everyone. It's the kind of disease that if something doesn't happen real soon, will kill him. 
In fact, in verse 51, the servants meet the father with the news that the boy is living, and it leads us to believe that he wasn't going to be living unless something changed. The nobleman was popular, prominent, and powerful. Remember, as you think about those in positions of importance or power, that there is just as much sickness among them. And there is just as much a need of Jesus Christ. And so the Arabian proverb of Christ's day still stands true, where they would say, The black camel of grief kneels at every man's tent. What does that mean? It doesn't matter how rich, powerful, or successful one may become. Sooner or later, we will all experience tragedy and sorrow. It does not matter who you may be, sooner or later, you're going to experience some great sorrow in your life. You may be rich or poor, a man or a woman, black or white. The tragedy inevitably will become a part of your personal experience, and there will be nothing you can do to avoid it. Now, this is not merely my own opinion, of course. It is a truth that has been recognized throughout all of human history. One of the oldest pieces of literature contains an expression of this that has become proverbial. It's from the book of Job, chapter 5, verse 6, where it reads, For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. The Hebrew of this saying is beautiful because the two Hebrew words translated by our one word sparks is literally sons of the flame. And the thought is that men are born to endure the fires of this life and then to eventually perish in that burning. We know this is true. Life can be incredibly hard. Just think of every human birth. Because that life begins with pain. As the child who for the first time nine months has rested comfortably and warmly within the uterus of her mother is suddenly pushed and pulled into a hostile environment where she is immediately slapped by a complete stranger in which her first independent act is to cry. It's as if every human's first thought is welcome to a world of pain. Verse 48, please. And Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. I'm thinking to myself, that sounds pretty harsh. This man's son is dying, and he travels 20 miles to see Jesus, and Jesus rebukes him. This man hadn't done anything wrong in seeking the Lord's help and power to heal his son. Yet the Lord responds like, all you people want me for is to do things for you. This just doesn't sound like Jesus. I fear there wasn't something I was seeing here because that didn't make any sense at all to me. Why would Jesus say something like that to a grieving father? So I looked it up in the Greek and found that while Jesus addressed the father, he wasn't saying to the dad, you will not believe unless you see signs and wonders. The Greek word for see is plural. Thus he was saying, you all will not believe unless you see signs and wonders. He was speaking in pluralities. Jesus was talking to everyone who was there. 
Jesus' reply shows how disappointed he was at the attitude that had been revealed in Jerusalem. There they had followed him and only only in the order to see signs and wonders. Now in Judea, the common people had flocked to hear his words. In Samaria, there had been a mini revival where men and women had genuinely sought after God. But these city dwellers, like those in Jerusalem, would only want signs and wonders. Now fortunately, the nobleman proved himself to be truly noble, for he was not offended. Nor did he seek to justify himself either before Jesus or before the others. He simply stood his ground, reiterating his need and humbling himself to receive his answer in whatever way Jesus chose to give it. Here then is the first answer to the way in which we can find triumph or victory during times of sorrow. It is to trust Jesus enough to allow him to operate in whatever way he chooses, even if we don't understand. Sometimes the Lord will do things in our lives that we simply don't understand. It's during those times we must learn to trust him regardless of the way that we may feel at that time. In a parable about a resistance fighter during the war, Basil Mitchell writes this, In time of war in an occupied country, a member of the resistance meets one night a stranger who deeply impresses him. They spend that night together in conversation. The stranger tells the partisan that he himself is on the side of the resistance and indeed that he is in command of it and urges the partisan to have faith in him no matter what happens. The partisan is utterly convinced at the meeting of the stranger's sincerity and undertakes to trust him. They never meet in conditions of intimacy ever again. But sometimes the stranger is seen helping the members of the resistance and the partisan is grateful and says to his friends, See, he is on our side. However, oddly, sometimes he is seen in the uniform of the police officer handing over patriots to the occupying power. On these occasions, his friends murmur against him. But the partisan still says, He is still on our side. He still believes that, in spite of appearances, the stranger did not deceive him. Sometimes he asks the stranger for help and he receives it. He is thankful. But sometimes he asks and does not receive it. Then he says, the stranger must know best. I'll be honest enough with you this morning to tell you I felt that way many times over the years that I have walked with Christ. I mean, I know the Bible says I'm supposed to be filled with joy and peace and purpose and that he walks with me along the narrow way but sometimes my feelings don't match with what I know is true reality why is that because sin has changed everything the world was not supposed to be this way if you remember the Garden of Eden was a paradise but because of the fall things have gone wrong badly wrong and continue to go wrong. Sometimes tragedy, though it can be horrible and heart-rending, works out in the end to be the best thing for us because it drives us to God. Listen to what the scripture says in Ecclesiastes. It says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. 
The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. You'll never see that on a bumper sticker or talked about on TBN. So what does it mean? Simply this. Sometimes we need to walk through dark valleys just to remind us that we truly do need the Lord. A mature Christian can say what the psalmist who said in Psalm 119,75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. I'm not saying I'm completely there yet, but wouldn't it be great to have such trust in God and his dealings in our lives that we could actually pray, O Lord, you are so faithful to afflict me for my good. Oswald Chambers writes to this point. He says, Faith for my deliverance is not faith in God. Faith means whether I am visibly delivered or not, I will stick to my belief that God is love. There are some things only learned in a fiery furnace. Now don't misunderstand me. I don't mean that we should avoid asking God for things like healings. When our loved ones are sick, the first thing we should do is exactly what this royal official did. When Connie got cancer a few years ago, we both did a lot of praying. But we also came to the agreement that if this was her time to go, we would do our best to honor God through it. And let me remind us this morning... Unless we are raptured, everyone in this room is terminal. We just all have different expiration dates. So we should go straight to Jesus and ask for a healing. But I also know that God does not heal every person every time we ask. And so don't rest your faith in only what God does for you, but put your faith in who God is. We can't expect that God will answer every prayer with miraculous healing. But there is one miracle that Jesus has guaranteed every time anyone would ask for it. If you will put your trust in him, Jesus will give you the eternal healing from the deathly consequences of sin, which is by far man's greatest need. None of us are promised everlasting life here on this earth. But if you will put your trust in Christ, he will absolutely give you eternal life in heaven. Verse 49, please. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. As I stand here before you this morning... I fully realize it is hard to trust people because people have let us down so many times in the past. Like the time two brothers were sitting in the kitchen talking, the older brother said, I'll give you $5 if you let me break three of these eggs on top of your head. You promise, asked the younger brother? I promise, said the older brother. Gleefully, the older boy proceeded to break the first egg and then the second egg over the brother's head. Standing stiff for fear the gooey mess would get all over him, the little boy asked, 
When is the third egg coming? It's not, replied the brother. That would cost me $5. (laughs) Hope I didn't give anybody any ideas. (laughs) Unlike that older brother, Jesus always keeps his word. He is 100% trustworthy. And this passage actually teaches us a lot about Jesus. You hear it said, If God is a healer, then why are so many children sick? If God is peaceful, then why do wars happen? If God is loving, then why do bad things happen to good people? Behind all these questions and others like it is the desire to see God to prove himself by taking away these evil things and then we will believe in him and live happily ever after. If God proves himself by taking away all the suffering in the world, then we will know for certain that he is God and we will now believe in him. But this logic simply doesn't work. Although all of us experience pain and suffering at some stage in our lives, sometimes we are healed, and sometimes things do work out the way that we wanted. But sometimes they don't. And when they don't, we can tend to act like this world is all that there is. Not only that, sometimes we are simply suffering from the consequences of bad decisions that God had nothing to do with, yet he still gets the blame. For example, when Princess Diana died in an automobile accident, a minister was interviewed and he was asked this question, How can God allow such a terrible tragedy? I loved his response. He said, Could it have had something to do with a drunk driver going 90 miles an hour in a narrow tunnel? Just how exactly was God involved in that? Or years ago, boxer Ray Boom Boom Mancini killed a Korean opponent with a hard right to his head. At the press conference after the Korean's death, Mancini said, Sometimes I wonder why God does the things he does. Or a letter to James Dawson, a young woman, asked this anguished question. Four years ago, I was dating a man and became pregnant. I was devastated. I asked God, why have you allowed this to happen to me? And finally, Susan Smith, a South Carolina mother a few years ago, who pushed her two sons into a lake to drown and then blamed a fictional carjacker for the deed, wrote in her confession. I dropped to the lowest point when I allowed my children to go down that ramp into the water without me. I took off running and screaming, Oh God, oh God, no, what have I done? Why have you let this happen? Now the question remains, exactly what role did God play in a drunk driver or a boxer beating his opponent to death or a teenage couple giving into temptation in the backseat of a car Or a mother drowning her children? Is God responsible for these acts? To the contrary, these are examples of human free will being exercised on a fallen planet. And yet it's our nature as mortal, frail, fallen people to lash out at one who is not, that being God. This all involves how God's sovereignty and man's free will interacts, which I will look at more fully next Sunday. This has challenged the minds of the greatest theologians throughout all of history. But I'm going to fix all that next Sunday. So just make sure you're here. Anyway, back to reality. 
Jesus taught that one must believe first, then he will see the results. Now most of us in our quest to have meaningful faith seem to be saying to God, you show me and then I'll believe. This approach never works. God has made it very clear to us in the life and teaching of his son Jesus that the process must actually be reversed. He is saying to us, believe in me and then I will show you. But here's the rub. We may not like what God has to show us, or if he refuses to answer a prayer in the way that we desired. Please keep in mind that when God answers no to a prayer instead of a yes, that is still an answered prayer. But because of this, some Christians become bitter. They have prayed, yet they were not healed or helped in the way that they had thought. They thought they had a promise from God and that God was obligated to heal them or bless them financially. And so notice here that Jesus denies his first request to go to Capernaum with this royal official. Jesus said, no, I'm not going with you. Now catch this, he was expecting Jesus to come with him and lay hands on his son. He had a preconceived idea of how Jesus should do this. Ever been there? Jesus, this is what I need, and this is how I need you to do it. I need you to stop this, start that, go here, or do that. We have this wonderful plan all mapped out in our mind as to how God should work. That's this man. Jesus, if you are there with my son, he will be healed. But you see, Jesus has something better in mind. Jesus was going to heal his son without ever laying hands on his son. This reminds me of Lazarus. Mary and Martha sent for Jesus because their brother Lazarus was sick and dying. And yet Jesus seemingly said no. And Lazarus died. Jesus didn't grant their request. They tried to tell Jesus how to meet their need, but Jesus had something better in mind for Lazarus. Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so sometimes when Jesus says no, he simply has something better in mind for us. Now, it might not be what we want or prayed for. It might not even be what we expected or even what we wanted. We may never understand how his answer could be better. But just because Jesus says no doesn't mean that he doesn't know what he's doing. It doesn't mean that Jesus hasn't acted in our best interest. That's why it bothers me to hear so many things on Facebook, things like, God's got this. And what they almost always mean is if a person is sick, they are always going to be healed. If the marriage is in trouble, it's always going to be saved. If the prodigal is gone, he's always going to come home. But a lot of times, that doesn't happen. And guess what? God still got this. He's still on the throne regardless of how we want things to turn out. That is true belief in God. Now, unbelief, on the other hand, has a short and ungrateful memory. That is true for whole nations as well as for individuals, as Israel's history proved. Again and again, as a nation prepared to cross the Jordan and enter into the Promised Land, Moses would solemnly warn them, Remember. No one knew better than Moses their stubbornness and volatile fickleness demonstrated repeatedly after the exodus from Egypt. When the people were in Egypt, they cried out for freedom. But then when they were free, 
they cried to go back to Egypt. If there was a lack of water, they complained. And if there was water, they complained about the manna. Sadly, much like them, if we aren't careful, we can be just as fickle and unthankful as they are. So as we finish up, I guess what I want to leave us with is this. Go to God with your problems, but go to God for more than your problems. So many people only want God as a problem solver. God, if you will just get me out of this problem. God, if you will just heal this person. God, if you will just get me this job. Or God, if you will just get me that relationship. Or once you get into that relationship, it changes to God, please get me out of this relationship. At least kill one of us. So here's the good news. God answers prayer. But if who God is means less to you than what he can do for you, then you have missed the message entirely. Do we exhibit the words of 2 Corinthians 5, 7, where we are exhorted, for we walk by faith and not by sight. In closing, Charles Spurgeon once said, I would recommend you to either believe God up to the hilt or else not believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There is no logical standing place between the two. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the deeps of divine revelation. A faith that paddles about the edge of the water is poor faith at best. It is better than a dry land, is little better than a dry land faith and is not good for much. Let that not be said of any of us this morning. Father, we thank you for your word, always knowing, Lord, that it does what you have accomplished it to do. And I pray, Father, there will be fertile hearts within the sound of my voice. You and you alone, Lord, know what every person in this room stands need of, whether it's salvation, strength, sanctification, encouragement. You are truly the man for all those things, for you experienced all those things. You are a great high priest. I just pray, Father, that you would just bless us as we go. Let these words ring in our minds and just draw us closer to you this next Sunday. We ask in your name. Amen. This being the first Sunday of the month, we'll be having communion. Ask Steve and Dave to come up.